Well, good evening, church. Um, it's a blessing to be with uh, you guys once again. Uh, so tonight, uh, we're going to be in the book of Philemon. Um, it's a smaller book, uh, so if you want to turn your Bibles to uh, that book right now, you'll find it just before Hebrews and just after Titus. Uh, it's just one chapter. Uh, it might even be hidden on one page uh, in your Bible. And uh, this may be a little ambitious, uh, but tonight what I'd like to do is to try to get through the whole book. Um, you know, we've been spending a, a lot of time in Romans, and so tonight we're going to try to get through one whole book. Um, but So if we don't, that's okay. We'll just get as far as we can, and we'll pick up where we uh, left off next time. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, again, open them to the book of Philemon, uh, and we're going to read through uh, the entire letter together. Starting in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia and our sister Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, and I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me a while in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, church, one of the blessings of getting to preach is you get to pick what book of the Bible you're going to preach from, what passage. And so, uh, much like Scott, I believe that the best way to teach from the Bible is to just go verse by verse and let the truth of the gospel speak for itself. You don't ignore anything, you don't move around the controversial, the tough parts. Uh, parts of the Bible. You just go verse by verse. And so that's what I want to do tonight. I want us to go verse by verse through Philemon. So why Philemon? Well, uh, during my last uh, training detachment to the West Coast last November, I spent a lot of time in this book. And as I studied it, I was really struck by what this letter from Paul to Philemon teaches us about forgiveness. Now, if you're sharp, when we just read through that, you might be thinking to yourself, Nate, the word forgive, uh, the word forgiveness doesn't appear in this epistle. And yes, you are correct. The word is not explicitly stated, but clearly Paul is talking about forgiveness in this letter. 
And it teaches us so much about Christian forgiveness because it demonstrates what that model of biblical forgiveness looks like. Now, I think understanding the context of what was surrounding this letter was really going to help us understand the magnitude of what this epistle teaches us about forgiveness. So what, so what do we know? We know that Paul, again, wrote the letter. He wrote it somewhere around 60, uh, 65 AD or so, and he wrote it from prison. And again, it was a personal letter that was addressed to Philemon. Now, Philemon, we only know a little bit about him. This is the only time he's mentioned in the Bible. Uh, but we can gather some information from what we see here in this letter. So first of all, he was a wealthy man, apparently, as far as we can tell, who lived in Colossae in the first century. And Philemon obviously knew Paul. And we learn from verse 19 that Paul was the one who introduced Philemon to Christ in the first place and led him to the Lord to become a Christian. But we also learn that not only was he a Christian, but we see in verse 2 that he hosted the church in his house. Now, this was common in the first century. Actually, for the first few centuries of the church, uh, there were no buildings, uh, so the church would meet in people's houses. Often wealthy members of the church would meet or would host the gatherings in their house. And from our best indications, we don't actually see evidence of a dedicated church building specifically used for church or church gathering until about the third century. So the church depended upon these individuals who had the means to gather people together in one large place. And one of these people was Philemon. Now, we also learned that Philemon, along with being a wealthy man and one who hosted the church in his house as a Christian, we also learned that he had slaves. Now, slavery in the first century Roman Empire was a normal part of life, but it's also, to, it's also important to understand that it's a lot different than what we as Americans might immediately think about when we consider slavery. I think most of us, when we think of slavery, probably go back to colonial America and think about, you know, the uh, slave ships and the South and cotton fields and things like that. And while that certainly has certain parallels to what slavery was like in the first century Rome, it is not entirely or really even that close to what it was like. First of all, as much as one-third of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. So a large amount of people were slaves. And second of all, while slaves were property, in the Roman Empire, they were more closely resembled to maybe a servant relationship in something like Victorian Britain. So has anybody ever seen Downton Abbey? Right? That is, believe it or not, closer to what's common slavery was like in the Roman Empire than it was in America in the 18th and 19th centuries. So with that in mind, it's important to know that slaves in many cases were treated like members of their master's family. Uh, And it goes beyond that. They were taken care of. They were fed. They were given medical treatment. Um, Eventually in Rome, by the end of the first century, we see slaves actually had rights in court. So if a slave got accused of a crime, they could actually defend themselves in court. So while they were technically property, they also had rights. We also see that all career options were open to slaves. There were slave doctors, teachers, businessmen. Uh, Slaves even were entrusted with great responsibility, and it wasn't uncommon for a slave to be sent on a business trip or some kind of journey with an objective to achieve for their master being entrusted with great wealth and great responsibility along the way, maybe even by themselves. And this example is not unprecedented. If you remember in Uh, Genesis, in chapter 39, when Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, remember he was sold into slavery in Egypt. And if you recall, the man who purchased him was named Potiphar. And we learned that Potiphar did what with Joseph? He put him in charge of his entire household. He said everything that he owned, he put in the the charge of Joseph. 
So we know that slaves can own property. They can have opportunities to buy their own freedom. And believe it or not, it wasn't uncommon for slaves to become adopted by the family who owned them. And with that in mind, some historians would even go as far as to say that in many cases, slaves were better off than certain freedmen because at least they had a place to live and they were given food and, and care. Whereas potentially a freedman, if he had no money and no shelter, was completely destitute and on the street. So generally speaking, Romans treated slaves well, at least as well as they could, because they considered them a valuable investment and in many times considered them a member of their family. Now, with that in mind, slavery is still bad. I'm not trying to paint it into some rosy picture that it was good in the first century, just that it was different. And even for those who were treated well, they were still slaves. And for this reason, among others, slaves would on occasion run away. And one of these examples that we see here in the New Testament is Onesimus. And again, he ran away from Philemon, but from what we can gather, Philemon was a good man. He was a man of character, a Christian man, who likely treated Onesimus very well. But nevertheless, he ran. And we actually learn from verse 18 that when he did leave, he likely stole something from Philemon. So not only did he run, but potentially he stole. He betrayed Philemon. And so like most slaves who ran, Onesimus went to Rome, the capital of the empire and the mecca of their civilization. And the reason he did that was because he was probably hoping to blend into the crowd, to get lost into just the sheer numbers of people. And while he did that, through God's providence, of all the people he encountered, he came across Paul. And remember, Paul is in Rome because he's a prisoner, and while he had some degree of freedom, he may have been under house arrest at this time, he still managed to encounter Paul. And this, again, is just really a, a, a magnificent example of God's providence because of all the people that he could have come into contact with, he could have come into contact with a slave bounty hunter or someone in positions of authority or someone who could have led him down a path of darkness, but instead he encountered Paul. And Paul, being who he was, he ministered to him because that's what Paul does. If you, if you had a pulse and you could breathe, Paul would minister to you. It probably didn't even matter if he could speak the same language. He would find someone to translate and he would minister to you. And so Paul shared the gospel with Onesimus, and he became a Christian. And so naturally, as Paul got to know him, he found out things about him. He found out who he was, and that he was formerly a slave of Philemon, a runaway slave. And Paul knew Philemon. And even though he knew that Onesimus was useful to him and was valuable and someone he wanted to keep around, he also knew that Onesimus had issues that he needed to settle. He needed to go repair his relationship with Philemon. I mean, yes, he broke the law, like he, he ran away, but Paul said, you're valuable to me, but you need to go and make things right. And so he sent Onesimus back to Philemon. And another thing to remember that this was no small task. I mean, it was dangerous. Slave hunters were constantly on the lookout for runaway slaves. This is one of the reasons why Onesimus likely went to Rome in the first place, so he would avoid such threats. And so if a runaway slave actually was caught what would happen to them was they would be branded with an F for fugitive or fugitivo in Latin, and they would be severely punished, potentially beaten, and in worst cases, they would be crucified. And so Paul knew this was a dangerous task, and so from what we can tell from other New Testament books, Paul sent him with an escort. He sent him with a man named Tychicus. And again, Paul doesn't mention Tychicus in this letter, but when you read the letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians, we find out in chapter 4 that those who delivered that letter were two men, Onesimus and Tychicus. 
So it's only logical to assume that if they went to that geographic location where Philemon lived and delivered one letter, that they would likely then deliver the same letter to Philemon as well. Certainly Onesimus was there, and because he accompanied Tychicus to the church, we can assume that Paul would have him go all the way to Philemon's house, who also lived in Colossae. So now, knowing all of this, imagine what it must have been like for Philemon on that day when Onesimus returned to his doorstep. Imagine what it must have been going through his mind when the man who abandoned him, perhaps even stole from him, had betrayed him, had returned. Now, we don't know much about the amount of time, but certainly some degree of time had passed just for the sheer amount of time to travel from Colossae to Rome and back, not to mention the time that he encountered Paul. So maybe over a certain amount of time, Philemon had potentially began to forget. Maybe he started to move past what happened with Onesimus. So we can only imagine what it must have been like when he returns and that wound is reopened. But church, maybe you don't have to imagine. Have you ever been where Philemon was? Have you ever been wronged or betrayed? Has someone ever hurt you? And maybe after a time when you were finally able to move beyond it, maybe that person moved away or your situation's changed and you started to get over it, so to speak, without actually dealing with it, you were then confronted with that person or that issue. Imagine how your feelings were in that moment or maybe how they might be. Did you boil over with emotion and frustration, maybe even anger? Or was forgiveness the first thing that entered your mind? Perhaps that person, Euronesimus, maybe even experienced difficulties. Maybe when he showed up, Philemon thought that this man who was with Onesimus was a slave bounty hunter who was returning Onesimus back to him. Maybe he thought, yes, he deserves that. Justice. He, he wronged me. This is justice being served. Was that something that may have been on your mind? And church, let me tell you, if forgiveness isn't the first thing that's on your mind, it's understandable because we're emotional people. We're emotional beings. But let me tell you, it should be. Forgiveness should be the first thing on our mind in situations like this. We know the Bible is clear on that. In Matthew 18, Peter asked Jesus, he says, he says, teacher, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Should I forgive them seven times? And Peter is probably thinking to himself, man, I really, I'm going above and beyond. The requirement's only three times, but I'm going to say more than double that. Jesus is going to be really proud. Do you remember how Jesus replies when he says how many times we are to forgive? Seventy times seven. And, you know, he's, he's obviously using hyperbole here. He's not saying, like, that's a literal number. But the idea here is we are supposed to forgive. We are commanded to forgive. But in that moment, imagine how Philemon must have felt when he sees Onesimus at his door and he's handed this letter. With all that emotion, he begins reading Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. Well, regardless of what his reaction may have been, thankfully for him and for us, he came, Onesimus came, with this letter from Paul. And because in this letter we're going to see Paul ask Philemon to forgive Onesimus. He asks him to forgive him, and his plea is going to give us the biblical model of forgiveness. Even though the word doesn't actually appear, it's clear that that is what Paul is teaching in this letter. And so the first thing we learn from biblical forgiveness is that when we forgive, we encourage other believers. When we forgive, we encourage other believers. Now let's examine the text. Again, if you go back to verse, the first verse, we have Paul's greeting, and he says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. Now what's interesting here is that Paul 
introduces himself only as a prisoner. What does he usually introduce himself as? The apostle. So this tells us a couple things. First of all, it tells us that this is a personal letter, that Paul is not opening with his apostolic authority to almost to essentially lord it over Philemon. No, this is a personal letter. He also mentions that he's a prisoner. And again, we know this is one of his prison epistles. He wrote it while he was a prisoner in Rome. But he also says what? That he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Paul is clear on this, that even though he may be in a prison that is run by men, he is not a prisoner of Rome or a prisoner of any man. He's a prisoner for Christ because he is doing the Lord's will. And so he's doing this through a subtle appeal, both personally and also as a, as a leader to remind Philemon of his present circumstances, but also the mindset that he has in those circumstances. Now look how Paul addresses Philemon in verse 2. He says to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Now this is great because it shows us that Paul truly cared about Philemon. He was a good man. I mean, he hosted the church in his house. He was a blessing to his entire church family. Then these other two names here, Aphia and Archippus, those uh, were likely his wife and son. We don't have any other mention of Aphia, but we do see Archippus's name appear in Colossians as a member of the church who was willing and able to do work for the ministry. But we do see in verse 2 that Paul also addresses it to the church in your house. And again, the church met in Philemon's house. And so Paul is here demonstrating that he intends this letter not just to be read by Philemon, but also to the entire church. And so you say, well, why is that? Well, I think there's two reasons. The first is because he wanted to hold Philemon accountable to what he was about to ask him in this letter so that the church would know about it. But also, I think more importantly, is that he wanted the church to be encouraged by the forgiveness that Philemon was going to demonstrate towards Onesimus. So when this letter would be read, and then they would see the actions that Philemon was going to take, that would be a means to encourage the believers. This would be an opportunity for Philemon, a leader in the church, to set an example of Christian biblical forgiveness. And so how does Paul ask him? Well, he appeals to his character. Look at verse 4. Paul says that he thanks God daily, always, when he remembers you being Philemon in my prayers. I mean, think about that. He says he gives thanks for him. This isn't Paul praying that Philemon would change some kind of sinful behavior. He wasn't saying that he would be a better leader. He is giving thanks for him. Paul prays daily, thanking the Lord for Philemon. This is a, a testament to the kind of Christian man that he is. And it also begins to help us understand why Paul had such confidence that Philemon was going to be able to encourage the church through forgiving Onesimus. Now look at verse 5. He goes on. Paul says that he specifically thanks God for the love and faith that Philemon has towards who? Towards the Lord Jesus and the saints. So what's the key here? Well, the love and faith that Philemon has towards Christ is manifested in his love for the saints, i.e. his fellow Christians. Now, you might also say that for the Christian, our love for one another is manifested or it grows out of our love and faith in Christ. So Paul, again, he's, he's being a very good leader. He's building up the character of Philemon, appealing to his heart and his character as a Christian. And then he says in verse 6 that he prays, a continual prayer, that the sharing of Philemon's faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing. So the sharing of faith, what does that mean? Well, that's the sharing that we all do as Christians, the communion that we have as believers. But specifically, he prays that it would become effective. Well, what does that mean? Well, he means that your example of forgiveness would be effective for the church. 
effective as a leader and effective as a biblical model of how we are to be when it comes to forgiving those who sin against us. And finally, in verse 7, Paul says, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love. Now, notice what it says here. It says, I have derived. That's in the past tense. So Paul is saying, like, I'm already experiencing encouragement from the kind of man you are, the kind of Christian that you are. And furthermore, he says that the entire church has been refreshed through you. So what he's saying here is, like, Philemon, you already are a blessing. Like, you are an example to the church already. And so I pray that you will continue to do that through what I'm about to ask you to do, namely, forgive Onesimus. And you might say, well, he, he hasn't asked him to do anything yet. He's just building up his character. But again, remember, he's reading this letter and Onesimus is likely standing right in front of him. Or at the very least, it was delivered by Onesimus. So Paul, he could have begun the letter maybe how you or I would have. He may have said, hey, Onesimus he's a good guy. Give him another chance. He could have said, hey, he's changed. Give him another chance. Forget what he did, but he doesn't. What does Paul do? He appeals to the love and the faith of this Christian man, Philemon. And why? Because we're not called to forgive those who deserve it. We're commanded to forgive because Christ tells us it is what we are to do as Christians. Again, remember, in Matthew 18, Christ tells Peter, we are to forgive our brothers and sisters from our heart. And this is what Paul appeals to, the heart of Philemon, a heart filled with love and faith in Christ that is demonstrated in his love for the church, knowing that when Philemon does forgive Onesimus, it is going to be of great encouragement to the church because that is the truth. When we forgive others, it encourages fellow believers. They see us forgive and they say, wow, if he can do it, if he can forgive somebody for that, then I certainly can forgive this person for that. Or I can ask forgiveness for this if that person received forgiveness. And this is the effectiveness that Paul wanted from Philemon, the encouragement that would come from his example. And that brings us to our second point that we learn from this text, that forgiveness demonstrates the power of Christ in our lives. When we forgive, we demonstrate the power of Christ in our lives. Now look at, again at verse 8. Paul says, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Now again, what he means here is he's an apostle, so he could simply tell him, you have to do this. And he has faith in Philemon's obedience to obey. He has the authority to do that, but he doesn't. He appeals to his love. But furthermore, notice what else Paul says here. He says, to do what is required. So what does that mean? That means forgiveness is required, church. Like, we can't get around it. If Again, if we look back to Matthew 18, After Peter asks Jesus, how many times are we to forgive? Christ responds with a parable. And I'll read it to you. You don't have to, you can turn there if you like, or you can write the verse down. It's in Matthew chapter 18, and it starts in verse 23. And this is what Christ teaches about forgiveness in this parable. He says, this is Jesus speaking, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. 
But he refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So you see, church, in this parable, we are the servant who have been forgiven the unpayable debt. Our sins were forgiven in Christ eternally, forever. And so in light of that, we should be willing and eager to repay those who have much smaller debts and sins against us. We should be eager to forgive them. It's right here. We must forgive. It is required. So Paul could command Philemon to do that, but he doesn't. Again, remember in the introduction, he doesn't say he's an apostle. He just subtly appeals to the fact that he is. But instead, he takes a more personal approach. He, again, he has up to this point appeals to the character of Philemon, and now he continues to appeal upon his own love that Paul has for Philemon. And what's interesting is that to top it off, Paul adds a little bit of sympathy here in verse 9 when he says, I, Paul, an old man. And so here he's saying, in effect, I appeal to you out of love, but also cut me some slack because I'm kind of old, man. You know, and it's almost like you don't want to say no to like a grandfather or, you know, uh, like Michelle was saying, it would be like, you know, John MacArthur or some, some, or even like, you know, the late Billy Graham asking us to do something out of reverence for, you know, their position and for their, their age, you would be like, okay, I'll, I'll cut you some slack. I'll do what you're asking. So it's almost like a subtle appeal to sentiment. But remember, Paul intended this letter to be read by the entire church. And so he knows that they would encourage Philemon to comply. And so he appeals to their sentiment by reminding them of both his age and the fact that he's a prisoner. So now finally in verse 10, we come to it, the mention of Onesimus. And you say, it's, we're halfway through the letter. We still haven't learned, heard about Onesimus. Well, finally, after all of this, Paul says, verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, if you're thinking, why did it take so long for Paul to get to the point? Remember, Philemon knows what's going on. Onesimus is standing right there. Paul is deliberately appealing to the love and the faith of Philemon, knowing that he has what it takes to forgive. So now consider how Paul describes Onesimus. First, he calls him his son. He says that he became his father while he was in prison. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that Onesimus became a Christian when he met Paul. So firstly, we see that when he left, he was a non-believer, Onesimus, but now he's returning a believer. And second, we see in verse 11 that he was useless, but now he is useful, both to you and to me, is what Paul is saying. And this is interesting because Paul is actually playing with words here because Onesimus, that as a name, actually means useful. And so in Rome, it was a very common slave name, and often it was used as a nickname for a slave who was very capable or very valuable or very loved and, and uh, respected. They would name him Onesimus. So at one point, Onesimus was very useful to Philemon, but he left him. He betrayed him. He became useless. But now he is useful. Now, because of the transforming power of Christ in his life, he's living up to his name. But more than that, he's not just useful to Philemon, but he's useful to Paul. And how useful, Paul says in verse 13, that he was ministering to Paul. Now, some of your translations may say that he was serving me, and as in my ESV it says serving, but the actual Greek word there is diakune, 
which literally means to minister to. It's actually the word that we get for deacon. And so we have this man who was a former slave, a non-believer, who having met Paul and coming to know the Lord as his Lord and Savior and becoming a Christian, is now ministering to the Apostle Paul. So useful to him that Paul says that sending him back is like sending his own heart. I mean, this is amazing. Paul is telling Philemon, listen, he is useful to me and I want to keep him around. But because of my love for you and because of the love I know you have for the church, I'm sending him back because he needs to make things right. Philemon would be able to clearly see that Onesimus has changed at least to some degree because he's returned willingly. That's clear. Again, he knows the dangers of coming back. But now through this letter, he can see that Paul is telling him he's been transformed. He's a new man through the forgiveness of Christ in his own life. And furthermore, Paul knew that not only was Onesimus a transformed man because of Christ, but that Philemon, as a man of God, was also a transformed new creation because of Christ. And that's why he had confidence that Philemon would not only receive Onesimus, but that he would forgive him willingly. Now, Paul knew that Philemon had this ability, and that's why he wanted him to demonstrate this example in the church. That's why he was so confident in his appeal. And Paul even goes farther in verse 15 and 16. He says, this is probably why this whole thing happened. He appeals to God's providence, saying he probably went away so that God could bring him back to you. He left as a bondservant. He left as a useless slave. But now he returns to you as a brother, as more than a servant. He is a brother in Christ. And so that brings us to our final part about what we can learn from forgiveness from this letter. Is we learn that when we forgive, we follow the example of Christ. Because forgiveness follows the example of Christ. So if you look in verse 17, Paul says, If you consider me your partner, receive him as you would me. If he has wronged you or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So what Paul is literally telling Philemon is, listen, if he owes you anything, I'll repay it. Notice there's no mention of what the transgression is. There's no mention of what the debt is. Paul is saying that's not the point. The point is I'm going to do what it takes to make things right between the two of you. Now, church, does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Christ has done for us with the Lord. He has forgiven our sins. He has paid the price to make us right with the Lord so that we can be reconciled. That's what we call the doctrine of imputation, the forgiveness based on imputation, that Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us so that we can be reconciled and have, for, be forgiven and have fellowship with the Lord. This is at the heart of our salvation. And so Paul here is actually going a step farther as a leader. He's saying, listen, not only am I asking you to set an example of Christian forgiveness, but I am demonstrating what that example looks like. And more than that, I mean, think about how we are commanded to act by the Lord himself, by Jesus. I mean, remember the Lord's prayer in Matthew 6? We know this prayer, right? How does it go? It goes, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and what? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we see in this model of how we should pray and how we should act, we see that we are called to forgive those who have sinned against us. Why? Because we're following a command, following the example of Christ. And remember, we are forgiven in Christ. And having enjoyed that awesome forgiveness, we should want to forgive others. Not because they deserve it, but because we want to be like Christ. And so when you think about it in that way, when we forgive those who sinned against us, 
it's actually one of the ways we can be most like Christ. And Paul emphasizes this. He says it in verse 19, he repeats it. He says, I will repay it. He even says, I'm signing this in my own hand. I will repay it. And so, a quick little side note, the reason why that may be is there's twofold. Paul typically would dictate his letters. Um, he would have a secretary write them down, and he would usually sign his name. So here, because this is a smaller personal letter, perhaps Paul wrote this whole letter himself to show how serious he was. But either way, Paul is stressing the point. He's like, I'm serious. I'm willing to repay this debt. Let there be no doubt. And so Paul closes in verse 21, declaring his confidence in Philemon. He says, I am confident in your obedience, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Now, just in case you're wondering, Paul is not asking Philemon to free Onesimus. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but the Bible never directly attacks slavery. It never directly condemns it. Were the young church to do that in the first century, it would have been social upheaval. They would have been considered anarchists. Remember, one-third of Rome were slaves. Many members in the church were slaves. What the Bible does do is it stresses the equality of slaves and masters. It undermines the evils of slavery, and it condemns the abuses of slavery, and it works to change the hearts of those who are involved in the institution of slavery for them to realize that it is evil. But again, the question is, does Paul want Onesimus to be freed? Maybe, but that's not the point. The point here is forgiveness. He's asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus, and the hope and expectation is, because he's a Christian man of strong character, that he will do so willingly. So finally, Paul concludes with a greeting from some of the others who are with him. And I want to take note of one name, one of his fellow workers that Paul mentions. He mentions Mark. And that's really important, because if you go back to Acts, and you see at the beginning of Paul's ministry, we learn that when Paul and Barnabas went out, they were accompanied at one time by Mark. But at some point, we don't know why, Mark abandoned them. He was with them, and then he left. And then later when they get back to Jerusalem, Mark wants to go out with them. And Barnabas is saying, yes, let's take him. And Paul says, no, he left us, he betrayed us, he's not going to come with us. And they actually came to a stalemate. They, they could not reconcile this issue. So Paul and Barnabas split because Paul could not get over what Mark had done. But yet, we see here that Mark has returned. And we learn from 2 Timothy 4 that Paul describes Timothy as very useful to his ministry. So what this tells us is that Paul isn't simply asking Philemon to forgive and to be an example himself. Paul is saying, listen, I have worked out these issues in my own life. I have demonstrated the ability to do this myself. So follow the example that I am setting and follow the example that Christ has called for us to do. Just like Paul would always say, follow me as I follow Christ. He is, he's not just saying, do as I say, not as I preach. He's actually putting his money where his mouth is, so to speak. So you might wonder, did Philemon forgive Onesimus? Well, the early church history tells us that there was a man named Onesimus who became the bishop of a church in Ephesus. Now, we don't know if that was the same man, but we do have this letter, and I would say that the fact that this letter has survived and that it was circulated is testament probably to the fact that Philemon did forgive Onesimus, because we see the kind of character that he is in this letter, and the fact that it was circulated would likely indicate that he did forgive him, because it doesn't it wouldn't probably be a very good means of encouragement if it circulated with the story that he actually didn't forgive him. 
So now for us, we have to ask ourselves the hard question. Who do we need to forgive? Or maybe who do we need to ask forgiveness for? Because remember, this is required. We're commanded to follow the example of Christ. We have to ask ourselves, are we encouraging the church? Are we holding a grudge? Remember, church, we enjoy the greatest forgiveness of all time. Forgiveness from our sins so that we can have everlasting salvation and fellowship with the Lord. Everlasting life, that is an eternal forgiveness. And so knowing that, isn't it foolish to hold on to a grudge and refuse to forgive? So now as we close, you know, if this was a typical Sunday, we would probably, we would pray and we'd get in our cars and we'd go home. Maybe you would think to yourself, man, I need to forgive that person or I need to ask that person for forgiveness. But today's a little bit different because we're about to go into the Family Life Center. So I would encourage you to take, take a moment, think about someone who maybe you need to ask forgiveness for, or maybe someone you need to forgive. Write that person's name down and make it a point this week to forgive that person. Encourage the church through your ability to forgive. Now, you're not asking someone maybe who was a runaway slave. Maybe you had an argument. Maybe you lost your patience. Maybe you got angry. But you can find that person, maybe tonight, maybe this week, and you can ask them for forgiveness. Because again, church, it's what we're commanded to do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today grateful for the forgiveness that we enjoy because of your Son, Jesus. It is such an amazing gift, Lord. We can't even fully appreciate or comprehend the magnitude of your grace, but we are so grateful. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to work on our hearts. Help us, Lord, to have a heart of forgiveness, to, to encourage the church, to set the example, and to follow your example of forgiveness. So we thank you for the truth of your word. Help us to hold on to it, to apply it in our lives. And we pray that the moment of fellowship that we're about to enter into would be a blessed one, and that you would be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen.